Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll invite you to be finding a Bible and getting it opened up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to launch from there in just a moment as we get ready to spend these next few minutes in the pages of God's Word. It is great to see everybody on this beautiful, beautiful first day of the week. Just a treat to get to see the sunshine. Just puts a little pep in your step when you're able to then come together and to worship God as we are today. So glad that you're here. Got a number of guests with us, maybe even some first-time guests, and we very much appreciate your presence with us today. You honor us by your presence, but more importantly, you honor the Lord, and that's what we're about the business of today, honoring God through song, through prayer, and right now, as we listen to Him, as He speaks to us through His Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm reading here beginning in verse 18. In 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 18, Paul writes here, He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise and where is the scribe and where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, that passage provides a pretty good summary of how when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus always had a way of provoking a reaction, provoking a response out of different people. Whether Jesus provoked hatred, whether He provoked fear, whether He provoked confusion, or maybe He provoked outright adoration, Jesus' words and Jesus' actions always generated some kind of response from the people that He encountered. You know, never do we read of Jesus going somewhere or doing something or teaching something and the response to that was, eh, whatever. I don't really think much of that at all. You never read that in the Bible. When people were around Jesus, they either loved Him or they despised Him. They were either in awe of Him or maybe they were offended by Him. They either fell down and worshipped Him or they cursed Him. But no one encountered Jesus and said, eh, I don't really care one way or the other. No, Jesus always seemed to bring out a response out of the people that He was around. And that is never more true than at the cross. Paul talks in this passage about the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. And what Paul says here is he says that what Jesus did at the cross, it engendered a reaction. It engendered a certain kind of reaction from the Jews. And it engendered a certain kind of reaction from the Gentiles. To people who were unbelievers, the cross created a response. And to people who are believers, it also created a response. That the events at Calvary are so polarizing that you cannot hear the message and the story of the cross without having some kind of response. In fact, the responses that people have today to the message and the preaching of the cross... I think are very similar to the responses and to the reactions that people had in the first century 
who were actually standing there at the foot of the cross. Because think about it. On that fateful Friday afternoon when Jesus was crucified, there were people standing there on that hill. There were people standing in close proximity. They were witnessing with their very own eyes this sinless man being put to death and that event and the things that happened around it, that event affected those people. That the things that they saw, the things that they heard, it triggered just a wide range of emotions and reactions and in many ways, those responses that happened then, they continue to be mirrored in the hearts and lives of people even today. And that's why this morning I want us to spend just a few minutes at the cross. I want us to join that assembly, that crowd, that group of people who were standing in and around the cross. And I want us to notice their responses. I want us specifically to notice four of the responses that are evident in some of the principal parties at Calvary. And then as we're doing that, I want you to find yourself. That's the challenge this morning. You need to find yourself in one of these four responses. What is my reaction to the crucified Christ? Which of these four responses best describes my response to Jesus? Let's find out. Look in Mark the 15th chapter with me. This is where we'll be primarily for the remainder of the morning. We'll bounce out a couple of different times, but we'll keep coming back to Mark's gospel This is Mark's account of the crucifixion. Our Bible reading schedule for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reading about the crucifixion of Christ. And I'd like to help us get a little bit of a head start with that by looking in Mark the 15th chapter today. Let's begin in verse 21. In Mark 15 and in verse 21, there we're told that the soldiers, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, they compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And they, this is the soldiers, they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Right there. Right there in verse 24 is the first of these responses. Because there are always going to be people who are going to look at the cross and they are going to respond in selfishness. What can I get out of Jesus? You know, these soldiers here, they've already had their fun with Jesus. That's verses 16 through 20. They dressed Him up like a king. They bowed and knelt before Him. They mocked Him. They spit upon Him. They hit Him over the head. They pushed Him around. But now, now that all the fun and games have concluded, now this Roman death squad, well now it's time to get serious. Because now they're going to lead Jesus to that place of execution. And the tradition of the time allowed those soldiers to divide the personal effects of the one who was to be crucified. In fact, John's Gospel is going to point out that what these soldiers did that day in dividing the garment of Jesus, it was actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Psalm the 22nd chapter and in verse 18 it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. However, you should know and I should recognize that those soldiers, they didn't do that knowingly. They didn't divide the garments of Jesus because they realized, Oh, 
There's an Old Testament prophecy, and we've got to make sure to fulfill that prophecy. Let's do Psalm 22 with this guy. No, that wasn't their motivation. What was happening here at the cross was just pure, rank selfishness. How self-centered do you actually have to be to take somebody's clothing and just start to tear it up and divide it up while that person is right there, hanging, nailed to a wooden cross, writhing in pain, dying in excruciating fashion, only just a few feet away. You know, sometimes people get get a little creeped out at the thought of, of wearing a dead man's clothes. I remember me and my friend Jimmy one time, we had went to one of the peddler's malls and we got into this booth and there was a lady, the lady that was actually that owned the booth, she was sitting there and Jimmy found this jacket and he's like, man, that's a nice jacket. And he started to put it on and to see if it fit and the lady that operated the booth, she said, yeah, that was my husband's jacket. He just died like a week ago. And Jimmy, oh, let me take that off. I don't want that now. Sometimes folks are like that. But these soldiers didn't bother them. Hey, we'll take whatever we can get. We really don't even care about the guy who's hanging there on the cross. We're only interested in what we can get out of him. Can I ask you, does that same kind of response still happen today? Yes, it does. Think about it. Have you ever known somebody who maybe comes to church and their primary motivation is is they want to make contacts because they want to build up their clientele list. They want to do some network so that will maybe help their business or help their, their job prospects. I remember a guy a few years ago who started coming to church because he was running for a political office. Then when the campaign was over and when he didn't get elected, he, he stopped coming to church. And that happens. I'm just really kind of just interested in what can I get out of this for me? Or what about people who sometimes, young people sometimes do this, people who maybe feign interest in Jesus... Because, well, maybe that'll help me find a nice girl. Or maybe young ladies, maybe I'll feign interest in Jesus because that'll help me find a nice guy, somebody who will treat me right. Yeah, that other person, they might be interested in Jesus, but me, no, 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 no. I'm really just interested in finding a date. Or what about this? What if I'm, what if I'm down on my luck? What if I'm in a tough spot financially? I can maybe just pretend to care about Jesus. I can pretend to be a Christian. I can pretend that I kind of fit in amongst all these Jesus followers and then maybe what will happen is maybe the church will be sensitive to my needs and they'll, they'll give me some money and they'll give me some supplies and they'll give me some support. Maybe even right now what this is causing somebody to think of is maybe we're thinking of some of those TV preachers. Those guys who get up in front of large audiences and they preach an adulterated gospel and they do that why? Because they're selfish. They want to fleece people out of their money. All of that selfish, what's in it for me mentality, that didn't end with those soldiers who were standing at the foot of the cross. That self-seeking spirit, that continues down to this present day. And I want you to know, Jesus wants you to know, that that attitude is diametrically opposed to the kind of response that Jesus is actually looking for. Would you hold your place here in Mark? Look in Luke, please. In Luke chapter 9, what Jesus tells us here is that Christianity is not about getting something. That's not what this is about. Christianity is actually about giving something up. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says in verse 23, Luke 9, 23, He said to all of them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself 
and take up His cross daily and follow Me. I will remind you that Jesus didn't just preach that. Jesus lived that. He denied Himself. He gave Himself up. And so as a result, He then calls upon us, His followers, to do the exact same thing. Christianity is not about what's in it for me. Christianity is about what can I do for Jesus? And yet all too often, that's not what people are interested in. All too often what people want to know is is they want to know Jesus. If I follow you, aren't you supposed to do something for me? Aren't you supposed to bless me? Aren't you supposed to make my life better and improve it? Aren't you supposed to heal me whenever I'm sick? Aren't you supposed to fix all my problems? Aren't you supposed to take me to heaven? People come to Jesus and many times they do absolutely nothing for Him and yet they expect that they're going to extract everything that they can out of Jesus question is this morning, are you like those soldiers? Are you like those soldiers responding to Jesus in selfishness? If not, then maybe you're like this next group of people who are at the cross. Go back to Mark chapter 15. Let's pick up the reading in verse 25 now. In Mark 15 and in verse 25, there we're told that it was the third hour when they crucified Him. That would be around... It would be around 9 o'clock our time in the morning. Verse 26 now. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Right there, verse 26. Where Pilate ordered that Jesus would be crucified with the caption, with the header, The King of the Jews. What that shows us is that one of the most common reactions to Jesus is just plain old misunderstanding. That there were people who just did not know, they did not get, they did not realize what it meant for Jesus to be a king. That sign, king of the Jews, that sign would have absolutely drove the Jews crazy. They would not have liked that at all. They didn't want it, and you know what? Jesus wouldn't have wanted it either. But Pilate wrote it, and he wasn't going to take it down. And that sign, the King of the Jews, that announced to the world just how badly misunderstood Jesus had been. Now there's no doubt about it, Jesus was and is a king. And there's no denying that Jesus frequently talked about His kingdom, right? Jesus uses the expression, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, uses that expression more than 70 times in the gospel. But of course, as he talked about that, that didn't always translate into people's ears and into people's minds the way that Jesus intended for it to. Because whenever those words about a king or a kingdom, whenever people in first century Palestine, when they heard those words, what were they thinking of? They were thinking of a physical king. They were thinking of a physical kingdom. Under the, under the, 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 the boot of Roman oppression, when those Jews hear about a king and a kingdom, oh, That's what we want. We want a physical king. We want somebody like the great King David. Somebody like the great King Solomon. Someone who will come along and help to reestablish the physical kingdom of Israel. Make Israel great again. We want a king who can galvanize a revolution. Somebody who can stand up to the Romans. Somebody who will be able to lead us in this march. Restore us to prominence once again. We want a king who will lead us to that victory. 
And in fact, there were occasions in Jesus' life, I'm thinking of John 6 specifically, where the crowds went and tried to forcibly take Jesus and to then anoint Him and make Him that kind of king. And to Jesus' credit, He did everything that He could to try and clear up that misunderstanding. People misunderstood all kinds of things about kingship and about the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus was always trying to correct that and to clear that up. Jesus' teaching, for example, always focused on spiritual truths. You think about the parables. Are there any parables that talk about Jesus organizing an army and leading some kind of a revolt? There's never any kind of teaching about that. The teaching of Jesus always focused on spiritual truths. Jesus refused that attempt to make Him into a physical king. Jesus reiterated time and time and time again that my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, that's what He told Pilate, wasn't it? John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. Said that twice to Pilate. Jesus was practically begging people to understand Him and to understand Him correctly. But of course, people people are going to be people. And sometimes people are just stubborn in their thinking. Sometimes people are just kind of set in their ways of how they process things. Sometimes people have all kinds of preconceived notions and ideas. Sometimes people think that they've just kind of already got it all figured out so that even if Jesus comes along and says, I'm not that kind of king, even if He says it in a million different ways, it isn't going to matter because there's going to be some people who are just still, they're still going to misunderstand. And you know what? That's still going on today. That's still going on even to this day. People continue to misunderstand the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. People misunderstand the nature of His kingship. They misunderstand the nature of the kingdom that He established. In fact, do you realize this? There are many people in the religious world today who believe that Jesus hasn't actually yet established His kingdom. There are people in the religious world today who believe that Jesus is going to return someday at some point in the future when there's a rapture and tribulation and Armageddon and all of these various events, these things are going to happen. And at that time, Jesus is going to come to earth and He's going to set up a physical kingdom. And He's going to do that in the literal, physical city of Jerusalem. He's going to set up shop on the physical throne of David. And He's going to reign there for a physical 1,000 years. That's an elaborate doctrine called premillennialism. And chances are, many of your and many of my religious friends and neighbors probably believe in that doctrine, or at least certain aspects of that doctrine. Do you know what the problem is in all of that? The problem in all of that is just a misunderstanding of what the kingdom is and what Christ's kingdom is all about. And our job, somewhere along the way, they've messed up in their thinking. Our job, our job is to help to show people. Let's look at what the Bible says. What's the Bible say about Jesus as king? What's the Bible say about Christ's king? We're going to try to help clear that up and have a better understanding about that. Or what about this? Thinking about how people misunderstand King Jesus and the King's kingdom. What about this? What about people who believe that the purpose of Christ's kingdom is to cure all of the ills in society? And that the church, that Jesus' church, is designed to be the agency to carry out the mission of curing and fixing all of the societal woes. It's called the social gospel. And what the social gospel says is that the church is to be involved in feeding the poor. That's our job. 
Our job is to clothe the homeless and the naked. Our job is to help clean up the natural environment outside. Our job is to help fight for political reforms and to stand up for social justice. People believe that Christ's kingdom is all about making life better here. And I will submit to you once again that that is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of the king and the nature of the kingdom. Because if all we ever do is help people to have a better existence in this life, then how are we going to ever prepare anybody for the life that is to come for eternity? If you look in Romans 14, hold your place in Mark again. Look in Romans 14. Here's a handy little verse that helps to clarify what Jesus' kingdom is, what it is not. In Romans chapter 14, this is verse 17. There Paul writes, Romans 14 and verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God, it is not a matter of eating and drinking. There's the negative side of it. Christ's kingdom is not about fulfilling all these physical needs and taking care of people's physical desires and wants and all that. That's not what it's about. Instead, Romans 14 verse 17 says that the kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus' kingdom is about spiritual realities. It's about how to live right. That's righteousness. It's about how to have peace and harmony with God. It's about how to have inner joy, spiritual happiness in my soul. Jesus did not come to change all of the ills of society. He came to change the hearts of individuals. And so His kingdom is not about food or land or thrones. No, it's about grace and mercy and forgiveness that's found at the cross. What you and I need to be doing then is we need to be careful not to allow our ideas or our preconceived notions of, oh yeah, this is what the church ought to be about. This is what the mission of the kingdom is about. We need to make sure that our ideas don't get in the way and don't interfere with what the king has made clear his kingdom is to be about. Because as soon as we start pressing our agendas and our thinksos onto Jesus, then we're going to be just like these people here. We're going to be just like Pilate. We're going to misunderstand the Lord. We're going to misunderstand Him just like people did so long ago at the cross. Which brings me back to Mark the 15th chapter. Because there is a third response that Jesus provoked in people who were there at Calvary. Begin the reading again in verse 27. In verse 27 now, we're told there that with Jesus they crucified two robbers, two criminals, one on His right and one on His left. Verse 28, the Scripture was fulfilled that says He was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 29, And those who passed by, they derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked Him to one another saying, He saved others and He can't even save Himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from now from the come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him, they also reviled him. That's that third reaction, very evident there in verses twenty nine through thirty two, and that is the reaction of just out and out disbelief, no faith. People who were just determined not to believe, people who had convinced themselves that that Jesus character. He's a crook. He's a fake. He's a phony. He's a fraud. That's really what those chief priests are telling each other and they're telling everybody else there in verse 31. 
He's a charlatan. He's a faker. He's a fraud. He's up there telling us that he's the Savior of Israel. Look at him. Can't even save himself. He's fooled everybody into believing all of his magic tricks, all of his miracles that he possessed such great power. How much power does he have now? In many ways, the reaction of these people really makes me wonder just how callous they really were within their hearts. You stop and just think about, just take a step back and think about what, what, what happens in a crucifixion. Crucifixion is just a torturous process. A person dies in ways that really almost defies our comprehension. It is an excruciating form of death. Can you imagine making fun of someone who is dying in that way? And they're dying right before your very eyes. Just how hard-hearted do you have to be? And what about all that business there in verse 32? When they said, come down from the cross and we will believe. Really? Really? If, If Jesus came down from the cross right then and right there, would that really make a difference in whether or not those people believe? Think about it. Just the night before, just a few hours prior to this, these same people, many of these same people, they just saw Jesus put a guy's ear back on his head. How much more proof of Jesus' power would you need than that? And that's not even to mention all the other signs and all the other wonders and miracles that Jesus had performed. Would coming down from the cross now, would that really cause those people to start believing? I would submit to you, no it would not. And I know that. Because I know that just a few days later, when Jesus performed the ultimate miracle by rising from the dead, those people still did not believe. What we're looking at here is hardened, determined unbelief. You know what? That still exists today too. That's a response that Jesus often gets today. That there are people who have such a hatred for what is right. They do not like the idea of the light exposing their darkness. Instead, they love and they treasure what is evil and what is false. And as a result, they refuse to see Christ and to see Him in His glory. And just as those people at the cross, just as they were without excuse, people today are without that exact same excuse. Because the truth is, Jesus has left plenty of evidence for men and women to believe Him and to believe in Him. I read once about a, a young Christian, a teenager who was in college and she, she was being ridiculed by, by her college professor because she had faith in Jesus, because she did believe in Jesus. And the young lady tried to engage the professor about that and so she asked the professor, she said, Professor, well, well why do you feel that way? What is it about the story of Jesus? When you read the Gospels, what is it about Jesus that really troubles you? And the professor replied, well, in all honesty, I've never read it before. Ah, okay. Well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? You see, this isn't about fairly assessing and examining the evidence from the Bible. This isn't about looking at the New Testament documents that give us that eyewitness testimony, not just of one, not just of two, not just of three, but of four detailed accounts of the words and the actions and the deeds of this man, Jesus. 
This isn't about coming to and and reaching an informed conclusion about Jesus based on the biblical data as well as the data from secular history. No, 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 no. This is purely about a hardness of heart that just doesn't want to believe. And in fact, that is the response that I think Jesus is describing in Matthew the 13th chapter. Would you look back in Matthew 13? When the apostles came to Jesus and they asked Him, Jesus, why, why do you teach people in parables? What's the point of that? In Matthew 13, Jesus tells why He does that. In Matthew 13, in verse 13, Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. When you close your eyes, and when you stop your ears to the truth, then the end result of that is pretty hard unbelief. And while we certainly could stand up here and keep making all kinds of applications to them out there, all those people out there in the world, you probably know of some people, you've got some people in your life that are just in hardened unbelief. I want us to think about us in here. That's the audience that I have right now. What about those of us here today who, by our presence in this assembly, seem to be indicating that, yes, I believe in Jesus. Maybe even with our words as we sang in those songs today, or maybe if someone were to come to you and to ask you, you would even say it with your lips, yes, I believe in Jesus. But what about those who say that and acknowledge that, but then by the way that we live, it says just the opposite. That the way in which we live and conduct our lives on a day-to-day basis says, I don't really believe Jesus. Don't fool yourself. Unbelief. Even the kind of unbelief that, yes, I'll say the right things with my mouth, but my life and my action says just the opposite. Unbelief places you right there with that wicked and bloodthirsty mob at the foot of the cross who resisted the truth even when it was right there in front of them. Which brings me finally to Mark 15 one more time. Because there we will see that there is a fourth response that takes place at the cross. And this response is considerably different than all of those previous reactions. There Mark records for us in verse 33, that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Right here. Here's the guy that we're trying to get to. Not somebody who's trying to take advantage of Jesus like those selfish soldiers. Not somebody who misunderstands the king like Pilate and many others did. 
Not somebody like the chief priests and the scribes who just stubbornly refused to believe in Him. But no, what we have here is we have somebody who willingly and voluntarily, they come to faith in Christ. Now some have read those passages and they've tried to kind of minimize this man's profession of faith there in verse 39. Some have said, well, this man being a Roman, he was a, he's probably a polytheist. And so what he was saying here was he was basically just acknowledging that Jesus was one of many gods. But I, I am not persuaded by that. Think about it. This man supervised the death squad. This man had seen lots of people die. He had seen lots of people die by crucifixion. He had seen people die on a Roman cross. But you know what? He had never seen someone die on a Roman cross like this. Who hangs on a Roman cross and shows concern for their mother while they're dying? Who hangs on a Roman cross and utters out loud a prayer of forgiveness for the very people who are crucifying Him. Who hangs on a Roman cross and turns and looks at one of the criminals who's hanging next to Him and assures Him and says to Him, Today, you will be with Me in paradise. Maybe most of all, who hangs on a Roman cross and cries out to the heavens, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? and then dies with a calmness about Him that had never been seen before. In the midst of all of the pain, the physical torture and suffering of the cross, this centurion, he bore witness to a man whose words and his demeanor in that moment were clearly not of this world. And on top of that, what about all the other, the other worldly things that were happening and occurring that afternoon? Why? Why is there darkness over all of the land in the middle of the afternoon? There's not, there's not an eclipse of the sun going on here. Well, why is the ground quaking beneath our feet? Why is there, I'm hearing an uproar over at the temple. Something's happening over there. Why is there so much commotion down there? Something about all of this today is just not normal. And I will remind you that this centurion, even though he got to see and hear some things for those few hours, he did not see all of the great signs and the miracles that Jesus had performed. He didn't see the raising of Lazarus. He didn't see Jesus walking on the water. He didn't see the feeding of the 5,000. He didn't see the casting out of demons. Nor did He sit on the hillside of, of Galilee and listen to the greatest preaching that has ever been taught. He was not there at the Last Supper. And he did not see Jesus model servitude as he got up and he washed the apostles' feet. And yet still, still with what limited amount of time he was around Jesus, he came to a point of faith. In just a few short hours, as he superintended and oversaw the events of the cross, this man recognized that this here, this is not like anything that I have ever seen before. That this man on the cross... He's unique. He is different. And in fact, as I put all of these pieces together, there can be only one explanation. And that is that this man is exactly who he said he was. This man is the Son of God. What is so important for you and me today is that we have far more, far more evidence We have far more opportunities to learn and to know about Jesus than that centurion did. 
Think about it. We can hear the Sermon on the Mount when we open up Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We can watch Jesus model what it means to be a servant when we read John 13. We can see testimony after testimony after testimony of the signs and the wonders that Jesus did through those gospel accounts. We can know more than that centurion ever did. In light of that, what would possibly hinder you from coming to faith in Jesus Christ? If this man was compelled to respond at the cross by saying, Jesus is the Son of God, then what is preventing you from being able to say those same things? Jesus never let people be indifferent about Him, did He? Jesus always, by the way that He did things, He always elicited a response in His life, in His teaching, in His miracles, and especially at the cross, He brings people to a moment of decision and then they must choose. What's it going to be? How am I going to respond to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? Is there someone here this morning who needs to come and stand at the foot of the cross and to make the same response that that centurion made so long ago. That you are believing in Jesus. That if you do have faith and conviction working within you, are you willing and able to turn to Him in repentance? Can we help you today to be joined in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by being baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins? We're ready to help you do that. And in doing so, you can become a Christian today. You can begin following Jesus, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. All you need to do is make that known. And you can do that right now by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.